For eight years, Abigail Spanberger was an undercover CIA operative who recruited spies to help thwart terrorism attacks overseas. On January 6th, Spanberger, now a Democratic member of Congress from Virginia, used some of her espionage training to evade detection and calm her colleagues as a group of domestic terrorists invaded the U.S. Capitol and threatened their lives. This week, Spanberger was a co-sponsor of the resolution to impeach President Trump for inciting that attack. We'll talk to Spanberger about what she went through on that horrific day and what the historic impeachment vote means for her and the country on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So first of all, I just want to say I'm super excited. We've got Spanberger finally on Skullduggery. She's made quite a mark in Congress since she was elected in 2018, knocking off one of the far-right Republicans uh, from the Virginia suburbs, uh, David Bratt, but somebody who's also, Spanberger, also stood up and clashed with some of the more progressive members of uh, her caucus. So she's, uh, you know, she's carved out quite a niche. But look, we are talking the day after Donald Trump has been impeached. It is really mind-boggling to think a year ago, exactly a year ago, we were talking about the House impeachment of Donald Trump and what was going to happen in the Senate when the articles of impeachment went over. And here we are a year later talking about the exact same thing. Yeah. On one hand, it's deja vu all over again. On the other hand, there is a, a difference between you know a year ago and today, not just the underlying facts, uh, the uh, impeachable offenses, but the fact that uh, you know this is a more bipartisan impeachment with 10 members, 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment, including Liz Cheney, the uh, number three Republican in the House. 10 May not seem like a big number, but it is the most bipartisan impeachment vote in the history of of impeachments. Right, right. And and I got to say, I mean, I like a lot of people were shocked when Liz Cheney put out that very strong statement saying Absolutely. Trump incited this mob. He violated his oath of office. Absolutely, and you know, and it is because a line was crossed here that you know from really the moment of you know the election itself Donald Trump disputing that Joe Biden had won all of this time spouting all of these conspiracy theories and riling up millions and millions of his supporters to contest the results you know that I think you end up with more bipartisan support here than obviously the the horrific thing that happened on on January 6th. But it's also the reason that someone like Abigail Spanberger, who is a moderate Democrat, you know, is willing to speak up so with so much conviction and so much passion. Even, um, you know, we remember the last time around, there were some conservative Democrats, including national security Democrats, 
who eventually voted for impeachment, but it took them a while to get there. Not this time around. No. And, you know, the emotions among members over what happened was so powerful and so palpable. I mean, we heard that when we talked to um, Tom Malinowski the other day, and um, uh, you you hear it in all the comments that Democratic members gave. But, you know, the, the other speech from the debate that really leapt out was Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, who had fueled these conspiracy theories, talked about how uh, he was prepared to fight and object to the uh, Electoral College certification, voted that way. And then yesterday, when he gets up there, says, I'm sure it surprised some of his colleagues, the president was to blame for this attack, that Joe Biden was the legitimately elected president of the United States, and some of the nonsense spouted by Trump supporters, including those in the House, such as Matt Gates, that, uh, you know, maybe this was all suggesting this was all some Antifa operation that they had infiltrated the Trump rally and then uh, perpetuated this was a lie. And so hearing that from McCarthy was, uh, you know, quite jolting. And all I could think of uh, was, you know, how did he get religion? Well, what else happened over the past week? All these huge corporations saying they were no longer going to give money to anybody who objected to the Electoral College certification. McCarthy, barely a month ago, was imagining himself becoming the Speaker of the House because the Republicans did pick up so many uh, seats uh, in the November election. And then he sees, oh, my God, the money can dry up in an instant. What are we going to do? I have to placate the donors. So he gives that uh, talk. Right. And and. You know, clearly, I think he was trying to thread the needle here because he needed to placate those large corporate donors. But he's also got to worry about the Trump base and the grassroots of the party. You know, we are now living in an age where those people give, you know, a lot of money is raised in small dollar amounts on the Internet. So, you know, he's between a rock and a hard place. He had to say those tough things about Donald Trump, but ultimately he was not going to vote to impeach him. Yeah, they still need the big pack donations. They need both. From the companies and the dark money uh, that goes to the 501c4s and the super PACs. So uh, we'll have to get McCarthy on skullduggery uh, and uh, and grill him about all this. But look, we've got, you know, one of the more interesting members to talk to here, Abigail Spanberger. So let's get right to it. now have with us Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger from Virginia, one of the co-sponsors of the impeachment resolution. Congresswoman, we've been uh, eager to have you on the podcast for some time, so welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. I am glad to join you. So quite a day yesterday, the impeachment, the second impeachment of President Trump. Give us a sense of what it was like on the floor of the House yesterday when you were voting to impeach the president? I think the general sentiment was sadness. You know, it's, it's been such a such a week on Capitol Hill. Suddenly there's been a major transformation. The entire place is fortified in a way that it hasn't been. We were in the chamber where some of us, myself included, were on the day of the insurrectionist attack. So it was, it was just a very somber 
somber feeling as we were endeavoring to impeach the president for a second time. You know, something it's just something I, I never really thought we would we would come to as a country. As you listened to uh, the debate, and I got to say, this really isn't a debate you folks have. Everybody gets up and gives their, you know, canned talking point statements. But the Republicans, frankly, were more interesting to listen to the Democrats because they were all over the map um, from some who took very principled stands for impeachment, 10, others who took principled stands but did not vote for impeachment, and others who completely backed the president. As you listen to all of them, and I should have mentioned Kevin McCarthy condemning the president for the first time after having fed many of the um, conspiracy theories that led to all this. Well, what were your thoughts about how your Republican colleagues were dealing with this? You know, it was... It was um... I guess, shocking to listen to at some points in time. And I would just say that among the arguments that I found to be the most uh, egregious or just mind-blowing were those who said, you know, he did something wrong, those who said this could be impeachable. And, you know, some in their actual speeches, some on in one-on-one conversations, but the timing's wrong, but I don't like the way the articles were written, so therefore I'm not going to impeach. That was... Those comments and those uh, statements were among the most ridiculous in my point. And, and, you know, in speaking with a colleague, he said, well, I think it was definitely impeachable, but I don't like the way it was written. And I said, well, would you like me to connect you with Ted Lieu, David Cicilline and Jamie Raskin so that they could help clear up whatever grammatical or whatever issue you may have? And of course, there was silence because I think there are some people who really want to play it both ways. Um, And then there were others who had just calls for unity. Meanwhile, the week before, after police officers were beaten, defending the United States Capitol, defending our lives within hours of those beatings, within hours of police officers going to the hospital, one of whom later died, they were there arguing that an election was stolen. They were there arguing that, well, we just we need more time. And so in fact, what has been so bothersome to me is this didn't happen overnight. There wasn't a rally on the morning of the 6th that fired up a mob to come be insurrectionist attackers on Capitol Hill. This happened bit by bit over time as they waded into that water like a frog in boiling water and they didn't stand up for the truth time and time again. The election happened, Joe Biden won, well, there's still some states doing a recount. Okay, but even those recounts won't change the results. Well, I'll wait till the recounts are done, bit by bit. Then December 8th came, which was the deadline for states to uh, have their certifications out. Well, I'll wait till the 14th, which is when the electors all vote. December 14th came and went. Well, there's still some court cases. Meanwhile, all 50 states have certified their elections. Well, I'll sign on to this amicus brief because it will make my constituents happy. Then in the lead up to the sixth, well, you know, maybe I'll just stand up and and say that I want to register my distrust in our electoral system in Arizona and Pennsylvania, just, just because. So all along the way, people across America who have been taken in by conspiracy theories and by lies didn't have leadership from their members of Congress saying, folks, we may not be happy about it, but our guy lost. 
folks, we may not be happy about it, but I'm going to pursue my conservative principles despite whoever's in the White House. They didn't do it. And so bit by bit, they normalized this stop the steal. They fundraised off this stop the steal. And so then to listen to people on the floor of the House say, you know, we need to just come together and unite and stop this, these political games. They've been playing dangerous political games for months. And January 6th was the culmination of that. But not was it, it wasn't just a culmination, it was in fact the beginning because these threats are going to continue. They've given a voice and a rise and a forum to these domestic violent extremist groups. One quick follow-up, Congresswoman, and I don't want to belabor the point because I, I do get what you're saying in terms of the large majority of, of Republicans here, but there are some, maybe, and we're going to have one on this podcast after you, Congressman uh, Mike McCall from Texas, who did vote for certification and then voted against the impeachment article saying that he really struggled with it. We're, the, we're not the, we're the indictment, the trial and the, the conviction or the acquittal that happens in the Senate. So even the premise of that argument and the articles were, did he incite an insurrection or is there enough to charge him with? inciting an insurrection. That's what we were as members of the House of Representatives. Was there enough to charge him with inciting an insurrection? The trial happens in the Senate. And certainly some some colleagues, and I won't speak to my colleague from Texas, but certainly some people in their speeches really didn't have that the connection between the role of members of the House and the role of members of the Senate, which are distinct. So what happens now? When are the articles going to be presented to the Senate? And, you know, take us through what you expect is going to happen. It doesn't look like a trial can start until the day that Donald Trump leaves office. So, and I I probably know about as much as you and your listeners just from press reporting. Uh, My understanding is that the Senate will not be returning any earlier than they are already planning to return. So the earliest, presumably, that the articles could be sent over, and it is an actual procedure and an actual event with the impeachment managers carrying over the articles of impeachment. My understanding is that can happen no earlier than the 19th of January. Uh, though, so the day that, before he leaves the day office, before but, 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 but the actual yeah. trial, because you'd have to, you know, That's approve right. the rules and the all rules that and right. all of the process. Yeah. yeah, that will certainly happen after the inauguration. And I'm, I'm unsure how quickly they will be able to begin that, but probably later in the week. And what is your sense of the state of play in the Senate right now in terms of you to convict Donald Trump? You'd have to have 17 Republicans join all, all of the uh, Democrats. Uh, do you think that that is possible? Do you think it's likely? What's your assessment of uh, the chances of conviction? Well, so my my real hope, and I, I say this with kind of reflecting back on the earlier portion of our conversation, my real hope is that there will be a full trial and that there will be information, videos, videos of the insurrection itself, videos of the president's speech, videos of what led up to this. And because we actually have videography and real evidence of the president's words, uh, that there would be individuals potentially brought in to testify. And that um, as that trial takes place, I hope it takes as long as necessary to bring in the individuals and the pieces of evidence that will really 
ensure a fulsome, fulsome trial. And I hope that uh, from there, senators will uh, look at the evidence as they would be expected to do if they were uh, jurors in any trial anywhere else. Presumably, members of Congress themselves will be witnesses since they were there and wit- yeah. you know, witnessed with their own eyes the insurrection. That's right. I assume that that is likely, but I have not been told definitively that we will be called. Or who will so, be. Congressman, the, the concerns that some Democrats have, not Democratic House members because you all voted for it, but the concerns that some have is, number one, to have a trial after Trump leaves office as Biden is trying to set a new course for the country, get his appointees confirmed, deal with the raging pandemic that out out there, that this becomes a distraction. We're still all talking about Donald Trump rather than putting this country on a new course. And number two, if you don't get 17 votes, it can be seen as another failed impeachment. He was acquitted. And Trump, to the extent that he still has a following, can use that. And it becomes, you know, you've muted what you were trying to accomplish here, which was holding the guy accountable. For starters, I'll say I, you know, I wish, and I, I think I can speak for just about every member of Congress, if not certainly all of the Democrats, I wish that we could reach January 20th and be talking about vaccine distribution and rebuilding the economy and lowering the cost of prescription drugs. And in my case, broadband internet connectivity and infrastructure. But the reality is that we're also at a place where we need to be talking about the stability of our democracy and what happens when fealty to one man can unleash something so violent and so terrible that frankly threatens the strength and the foundation of our country. And so it is with a heavy heart that I recognize that we need to have that hard conversation. We need to pursue accountability and we need to demonstrate leadership and a focus on understanding how things went wrong. And unfortunately, it does mean that we'll be talking about this current president a bit longer. But in the course of that trial, it is my hope that throughout the course of that trial, it'll demonstrate to the American people, the responsibility that he does bear for what happened on the 6th, and that it will make clear how we got to that point on the day of January 6th, Um, because we have to be able to understand that bit of our history if we are to move past it. And I look forward to moving past it as efficiently and expeditiously as we possibly can. But if we just pretend like it doesn't didn't happen, then we aren't going to be able to address some of the real root challenges that got us there. And if we don't do that, then we are doomed to see it happen again and potentially again and again. Congresswoman, you signed on to a letter from 30 House Democrats to the sergeant of arms of both the House and the Senate and the acting chief of the Capitol Police asking for an investigation into a suspicious number of visitors to the Capitol complex on January Mm -hmm. 5th, so the day before the insurrection. And the suspicion is that these were not normal visitors, just you know, tourists getting tours of the Congress, but rather this was possibly part of a reconnaissance operation by the people who ultimately attacked the Capitol. And the suggestion is, is that Republican members of Congress may have in some ways aided and abetted them, that what you're suggesting here potentially is some kind of a conspiracy, that there is a fifth column within the Congress, if you will, 
What is the basis for that concern and why why ask for this investigation? So I think to be very clear, I am asking for an investigation without making final judgment or assessments of what I think happened or what importantly the motivations behind it were. What I know to be true, because I saw it with my own eyes, is there were many members of the public, lots of people who do not work at the United States Capitol within Capitol office buildings the day before. I saw them there. They did not work at the Capitol. They were dressed as tourists are dressed. They were dressed in many of the same ways you saw people on the 6th dressed with the ball caps and the paraphernalia t-shirts that you know pledge fidelity and fealty to one person. Um, I saw those people. I also know that since March, the Capitol complex has been shut down to the public because of the pandemic and COVID-19 concerns. So the only way that those individuals would have been able to gain access to the Capitol complex and our office buildings is if they had been brought in with a member of Congress. And so I'm asking for, or I joined an effort requesting a full investigation because we need to know how this happened. Um, I am not going to rush to judgment as to why it is that members of Congress would have potentially brought these individuals inside the Capitol. I am not necessarily going to rush to judge that there was some nefarious intent, but as part of any larger criminal investigation, which is ongoing because there was an insurrectionist attack, a domestic a terrorist attack on the United States Capitol, knowing that there was a change in the norm, at least the, the COVID-19 norm in the day or the days before this violent attack, I think is an important piece of information for investigators to know and be aware of and ideally dig into. What would the investigative steps be to prove that, I guess you're not calling it an allegation, but it's a suspicion? Well, so I think, um, you know, and I'm a, I'm a former federal agent, a former um, uh, a federal investigator, a former CIA officer. Um, and so in this case, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave it to the current professionals to focus on how this investigation actually unravels and unwinds. Um, but I'm sure that it would consist of reviewing videotape if it's there, talking to the Capitol Police officers who presumably would have been the ones who uh, allowed entry, talking to the members of Congress who may have innocently brought people in, or, you know, maybe there's more to it. Um, you know, I'm just not going to make any yeah. assertions because the value of the investigation is, you know, this is a see something, say something. There were clearly changes in what is normal protocols during COVID-19. Yeah. So yeah. what does it all mean? And I will point out that according to the letter anyway, there were people actually reported right. the existence of, of these visitors to security the day before on, uh, well, that day on January right. 5th. So before the insurrection actually That's right, occurred, because there's also notable. the rules within the United States Capitol that we have to wear masks because of the pandemic. Um, and so some of the visitors weren't abiding by the rules in that case. Um, of course, as you well know, many members of Congress and staff members have gotten COVID-19. And so that is also an, an area of concern, just any, any recklessness that was uh, allowed within the Capitol from a public health standpoint. As you mentioned, uh, you're a former CIA officer, operative, operation. So were you undercover, by I was, the way? I uh, was. In, in Europe, recruiting spies and counterterrorism cases? That's correct. Um, yeah, I left CIA <laughs> back in 2014 and went through the process of getting my employment declassified sometime thereafter. So that took right. a, a bit of time. And then by the time I ran for, for Congress in 2017, 2018, I had my employment declassified and could speak about it in, in general terms. Well, what fascinates me from what I've read is you may have used a little 
at least some of your CIA training during that harrowing day on January 6th, uh, even going undercover in a way, taking your congressional pin off so that none of the uh, insurrectionists knew that you were a member of Congress. Take us through just your own experiences on, uh, on January Well, so we 6th. had anticipated that January 6th would be a charged day, that there, there could be a potential for as I perceived it, at least maybe aggressive altercations. I had, we have very limited numbers of, of staff members coming into the office in the first place because of COVID-19. But further than that, I said, you know, I, bare bones, unless you have to be here, do not come to the office. If you're coming to the office, wear jeans, wear sweatpants, take your badge out of your Metro card holder. No one should know you're a Capitol employee until you actually have to show your ID to Capitol Police. Just as it, my intent was to try and avoid any sort of incidental altercations uh, between any members of my staff and, and certainly myself and anybody who'd be coming to town and presumably a bit amped up over the rallies that were occurring. But then it quickly, quickly started to change tenor and tone. I was in the House chamber as we were beginning the process of recognizing and hearing state by state the electoral vote counts. And very quickly, as we had begun the debate, the tone changed. We had gotten to the point where there had been objections to Arizona. So the senators had had gone back to the Senate chamber. The vice president had left with them. We had the Speaker of the House was in the Speaker's chair. And within a couple minutes, they had come in and said, we need to get the Speaker out. And so the Speaker left. We went back to the business that we were engaged in. And then it we started getting a flurry of information that they had breached the Capitol, that there were people inside the Capitol, that there was now a security threat. And because of COVID-19, we do not have all members on the floor of the House. Those of us who were not engaged in the debate, because we're not from one of the contested states, were up in the gallery area. So I was up in the gallery with other members. That's also where some members of the press were. And so in some short order of time, the folks who were on the floor were able to be evacuated out. The, those of us up in the gallery, there was no uh, egress option for us. So you know, we had to get out our gas mask, and that was actually before they evacuated the people from the floor. So we're you know, breaking open the gas mask. We knew that there had been chemical irritants deployed. And then for us up in the gallery, we were trying to get to a potential exit point. We were not able to exit where we were because, in fact, there were insurrectionists and domestic terrorists kind of outside that area. Um, and so we ended up having to climb over and crawl over the barriers between all of the different sections in the gallery. But by that point in time, it had heavily escalated. We were in the gallery in the House chamber uh, when there were shots fired just outside the speaker's lobby, which is one of the door entrances to the House floor. And you heard the yeah. shots from inside? Yeah, the chamber? I was in the chamber at that point in time. And we had heard other things, which along the way, you know, in we were saying, no, those are flashbangs. No, those are like, that's not a gunshot. And then that one went off. And it was a lot more clearly likely a gunshot. And it was so close to where we were. And um, there were the Capitol Police officers who were in the chamber were barricading up the door with benches. There's been some photos of that really widely put out there in the in the public view. Um, and we were alternating between getting down because the Capitol Police were worried that there would actually be, you know, presumably they were worried that there were shots fired. So they kept screaming, get down. So we're alternatively, you know, getting down, taking cover, um, also trying to figure out how to get out of the space. Um, and when they had subdued the insurrectionists outside of where we were, they were finally able to come open one door 
Um, and when we were exiting out, it was clear that they were all prone out on the ground. That was at the point where it was Metropolitan Police, DC Metropolitan Police and Capitol Police who had subdued all of those individuals as we were able to make our way out. What is going through your mind as a former CIA clandestine officer who gathered intelligence about foreign terrorist organizations who we feared would do these kinds of things to us, knowing that this is coming from within. You know, my mind was racing the entirety of the time because even these sorts of things, you know, through my training, we had done scenarios where you're at an event and they attack an event all from a training protocol. But in those training efforts, it's always you're overseas, you're in some place where the government is faltering and all of a sudden there's you know, explosions and, and potential hostage scenarios. So, you know, I had trained for this, but I had never imagined, I'm sitting there thinking, my, like, my God, this, this was supposed to happen in some far off place. This was supposed to happen, you know, in some other government building. This is supposed to happen in an embassy someplace. And it's happening at the United States Capitol and it's Americans who are doing it. It was, uh, my mind was of, of course running up, you know, miles and miles a minute, but it was just uh, absolutely shocking. Um, and continues to be. It is horrifying to me to think about what happened and who perpetrated uh, those crimes. And just to uh, complete the point I was making before, when you exit the chamber, you take off, you and others took off your, so your far, pants. You didn't want anybody yeah, to Yeah, no, actually, and were. so far before that, and you know, t- I guess to speak in my earlier training, I had worn all black and just a, a colorful vest, assuming that I would just get to be like a regular member of Congress. But all black because you were going to be a commando? In or, back of my mind, if I needed to just be a little bit less conspicuous, I, I can right. lose this bright colored and I have, you know, fun scarf. I can lose my scarf. I can lose my, my coat and I'm, I'm good. And so at one point when we were still, before I think even they had evacuated the speaker, but when things were starting to get a little bit tension filled and we were getting reports that they were getting, that there were protesters on the Capitol steps. Um, one of my colleagues was, she said, oh, I'm going to go back to my office. And I said, make sure you take off your pin. If anybody asks who you are, like, you don't tell them who you are. Um, and she looked at me funny. And I said, just go back to your office. If you bump in anybody who doesn't know who you are, just take off your pin. And she's like, okay, take off my pin. And so then when we were in the gallery, that's when, you know, and I said to the group around me, take off your pin. And then before we actually made our exit, we made a call to everybody, take off your pin, like everybody take off your pin. and because if they're targeting us, you know, the, the shiny little pin is, is not necessarily a helpful thing to be wearing. Yeah, I want to stay on this theme of the things that you were trained to defend America against, you know, overseas happening here. And I wonder, when you look at these, these groups, and they're not, it's a kind of an amalgam of different groups that have different philosophies, I guess, but have some common belief systems. What similarities do you see in terms of, you know, belief systems, in terms of tactics, recruitment strategies, susceptibility to recruitment? I mean, the internet is a huge part of it, I'm sure, but you must see some echoes between the foreign groups that we've been dealing with and what we're seeing Absolutely. So, and, you know, when I was with CIA, I worked on counter-radicalization efforts and counter-terrorism efforts. And so I spent a lot of time, a lot of time focused on how do people become radicalized? How do terrorist groups recruit? And, you know, and you look at major terrorist events throughout history, 
the different people, particularly those that have happened, you know, in the United States or the London bus bombings, for example, the perpetrators, how did they get pulled into a terrorist organization, recruited out of their home, in, in that particular case, recruited out of their home in England into these far off ideologies. And so I, the parallels are, are pretty significant. There's a couple pieces to it. One, there's this focus on righteousness, right? So you look at QAnon conspiracy theories and super far-right extremism and extremist ideology. There's a focus on, you know, this is the right thing to do. It's this off-kilter notion of some kind of crusade. Uh, I guess it's what zealotry that's right. is. That's right. right? It, there's a belonging to it, right? If you look at QAnon, there's the their phrase that they're all together and there's like a little bit of secrecy to it in the way that you'll see on Twitter and in various different places, people will put out messages and they capitalize the first letter of certain words in order to have their slogan. There's a off kiltering bit of truth. So you can't have a terrorist ideology. You can't have an extreme ideology without more moderate, more normalized efforts to kind of make, make the ground uneven. And so to my earlier point, you know, when people who know better say, oh, well, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe there were problems in the election. Oh, well, yeah, you know, maybe there were some votes stolen. Like that creates fertile ground for the people who want to go 10 steps further to say, I'm going to stop the steal. I'm going to raid the Capitol because that guy said there was a steal. And so that's why, you know, real leadership on the behalf of anybody who has a voice to say, no, 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 like this is craziness. Um, and we've seen it depending upon where those extreme ideologies have occurred when they utilize religion, um, potentially as a, a call to bring people forward when they bring, in this case, it's like a, a, a strange sense of patriotism to bring people forward. There's a, a way that those with more reputable voices can make the ground fertile for those who would go yeah. to the extreme yeah. extent. Do you talk to your Republican colleagues who are doing this, that you're giving them this kind of patina of plausibility and that you have to cut it out? You know, I, I, so I have many, many Republican colleagues and friends. I have prioritized bipartisanship in so many ways in my time on Capitol Hill. And I think where I have perhaps fallen short is we've talked very openly about the threat of conspiracy theories and trafficking and lies, but I, I haven't necessarily had the conversation of, when you call it that, I think, as someone who has a background in terrorism, I think you are creating fertile ground. I think you are normalizing some of this speech. Um, and I, I think perhaps, it, uh, you know, and those conversations will be hard to have. I suppose I'll try to have them wherever I can. But really the realization that all of this stuff that was happening that seems so bad for democracy in a more like philosophical space to see it actually come to a violent physical space, a tactical attack and not just a philosophical attack on our democracy. You know, I, I, I think maybe a lot of us, and as somebody who has been rather vocal against these ideologies, connecting the dots and saying, this goes from philosophical to tactical in the blink of an eye. And, and I guess there maybe was a failure of imagination that that blink of an eye would happen so quickly, so aggressively, and, and so fatally at home in the United States of America. So, uh, Congresswoman, I have two final questions for you. First is, in this case, the terrorist-slash-insurrectionist leader, i.e. President Trump, released this video last night calling for and saying, 
there's no place for violence. I want to get your reaction to that. And then also ask you, you represent a traditionally Republican district, was for years represented by Eric Cantor, who then got knocked off by an even more conservative guy, Dave Bratt, who you knocked off. I want to get the reaction from your constituents in your district to the uh, stand you've taken here. Well, and and so I think from a, I, I do represent a, a very historically Republican voting district and suburbs of suburbs Richmond, Richmond and out. rural yeah. communities through central Virginia. Um, you know, I outperformed President-elect Biden on the ballot and the, the, the reaction that I'm getting, of course, is mixed. But what I have prided on myself on doing is being very honest with my constituents about the tact and the opinion and the principles I'm following. Um, and even with the first impeachment, which you know was such a, a long process and I had town halls that made their way to national news because they became so heated and so emotional. You know, I have had constituents say, you know, I hate that vote on impeachment or I think you were wrong to impeach the president but I also think you thought you were doing the right thing. And these are people who don't necessarily agree with me last time. And so, you know, what I have endeavored to do is to just make very clear why I am deeply, deeply worried to make very clear, because this, this isn't an issue of partisan ideology. This isn't Republicans and Democrats. This is far right extreme ideology that has co-opted the Republican party. And we see principled Republicans who are standing up against it. And a lot of, in the neighboring Virginia's fifth district, former representative Denver Riggleman has been so vocal on this issue. Um, and to be able to say this, this actually isn't partisan, this is a deeply worrisome reality of where we are. Um, and I, I have always taken the tack that I do what I believe is right, do my damnedest to explain it, um, and hope that the voters prioritize principles, accountability, um, and efforts to demonstrate leadership more than uh, anything else. And so far, I'm, and Trump's uh, one election yeah, I, that's I, I, worked I, for me so far. So who knows? Okay, right. And Trump's uh, statement last so, night. Uh, you know, it, I I don't know the world that we live in where we're supposed to congratulate the president of the, of the United States for saying, please don't create an insurrectionist attack or further violence against state capitals. I mean, it is the reality of where we are, I suppose, and it's shocking. So, you know, I don't want us to normalize the fact that this is a statement, please don't attack other Americans and kill police officers, um, which I'm clearly paraphrasing. Those are not the words he said. I am glad he said it. It is arguably about four years too late. He should have been forceful after Charlottesville. Uh, he should have stopped his divisive rhetoric uh, after he could after he saw that it could become deadly. But, you know, I, I have to say I'm pleased that he's put this statement out. I hope his supporters are listening. But I think even just the measure of where we are, where we're supposed to be pleased that the commander in chief is saying, please, no more insurrection, at least not trying to honor me, is 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 just a, a reality that should not be lost on us for its absolute just mind blowing insanity. And last question, Congresswoman, uh, the country is tense with the threat of violence uh, going forward five and a half days until the inauguration, uh, Washington, D.C. is an armed camp with thousands and thousands of National Guard troops, threats against the capitals across the 50 states. How concerned are you about violence in the coming days? What are you expecting? And what do you see in terms of the government's efforts to mitigate uh, those so threats? I'm, I'm very concerned. And I'm very concerned because we saw it once and it 
could happen again. We know that there are groups planning on large scale protests, excuse me, large scale as they're putting it protests, but that quickly became an insurrectionist attack on the United States Capitol last time. So, um, you know, but anytime there's a, a group coming to Washington, D.C. or, you know, descending upon all 50 states and their capitals that have rules of engagement of when they are going to shoot, that are calling for armed events, uh, you know, it is a tinderbox of, of potential danger. And I am grateful for all of the work of federal, state, and local agencies in their efforts to, you know, root out the threats. We've seen FBI and local police departments across the country arresting people who participated in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. We have seen them running to ground various different threats that exist, but the reality is that they're real. And we know there will be many, many people showing up at capitals across all 50 states and at the United States Capitol this weekend and into uh, the days of the inauguration. So the, the threat is real because there are people who will be showing up armed with an idea that it is ever appropriate to shoot National Guard members or police officers or FBI or whoever else might be there to defend and protect these buildings, the people in it, and then the inauguration events. Well, wow. um, Congressman, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we want to have you back when we could talk about uh, some of the issues I, I sense you really would prefer to talk about than all this. I would this. love to spend uh, a full hour talking about broadband internet. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know about that, but well, I'm sure we, we could find we, some We may others. not give you the full <laughs> hour on, on broadband. Uh, you don't get what you don't ask for, gentlemen. So <laughs> okay. you're going to feel like it's so right. good we talk anyway. for 15 minutes about broadband internet, right? All right. We'll, give you 15, right. we'll give you 15 minutes. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank safe. you so much. Thank you. Yeah, stay safe. Okay.